Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest on Dan's podcast this morning is Amanda Fairbanks, a, uh, an author who has uh, hit her first book uh, as a sort of grand slam home run, which she's going to tell us about. And um, she lives in Sag Harbor, and um, uh, which is home to all the books that have ever been written about the eastern end of Long Island. <laughs> and <we're, laughs> welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know about hitting a, a grand slam, but I, I appreciate the, the I, praise. I read, I read some of the things. Uh, well, first of all, the book is about four fish, young fishermen who went out of a fishing boat about six years ago and were never heard from again. Into it, they ran into a storm. And um, uh, what I read was, the, was uh, I, I initially thought it was something to do with that statue out by the lighthouse, which is to the lost fishermen. It is, yes. The men are on there. Yes, but that was, I was thinking about when it was put up, which was much longer ago. And then I thought, maybe this has to do with, with the Montauk, um, you know, the monsters. They have that book about that Montauk is home to uh, crazy. Oh, right. All that supernatural. Right, right. Of course. So then uh, here we are. Um, I wanted to ask, first of all, and just to clarify, just one, one clarification. So the, the storm that I'm writing about actually takes place almost 40 years ago in March of 1984. Well, Um, then probably was when they put that statue out there. Yes. And then the statue went up in the late eighties, early nineties. So just, just so that we're clear on that. I uh, had it wrong because I had, I don't know why. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Because initially that's what I thought it was about. Yeah, it is. You're you're right. Anyhow, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself. First of all, uh, where you're from and how you came to Sag Harbor. Of course. So I grew up in Southern California and I came east for college and I fa- I found my people and I essentially uh, never went back. Uh, I met my husband in New York. And uh, at the time I was working as a researcher at the New York Times uh, after I graduated from Columbia uh, Journalism School. And we would spend kind of weekends out here. We eventually bought a very tiny place in the Northwest woods. And then once uh, once we had our first child, we came up with this uh, experiment, which was to see what it would be like to live here for a whole year and to see whether we liked it or didn't like it. Prior to that, I had worked at all sorts of large news organizations. And that summer, when my son was about five, six months old, I walked into uh, David Rattray's office and introduced myself. And before you know it, uh, I was a part-time staff writer covering largely education at first. And I was there from about 2012 to 2016. And near the very end of my time there was when um, an editor friend told me about this sort of great unsolved story and mystery of the East End. And that's when I really sunk my teeth in. A lot went on, I think, between the time that uh, 
Well, tell us, first of all, tell us a little bit about the book itself and uh, of what, course. what the theme of it, of it is and what it, what it is become, what is known about it. Of course. So one of the things I love about the work that I get to do and that you get to do is that often, you know, you go into these stories thinking that it's one thing and then invariably it starts to shape shift and hopefully become a whole lot more interesting right. over time. So this was initially kind of sold to me as the story about these four young men, obviously, who were lost at sea. I knew going in that there was this very interesting uh, socioeconomic disparity between these four men. There was this kind of, you know, very, very wealthy uh, summer kid from the Maidstone Club, Dave Connick. The captain, Michael Stedman's father, had gone to Harvard and he worked as a career diplomat for the UN. Um, and then there were two much younger working class kids, uh, Scotty Clark and Michael Vigilant, and their fates collided aboard this, this uh, commercial fishing boat, um, this horrible uh, storm that ripped up the East Coast in March of 84. So I went in knowing that sort of backstory. I also went in knowing that there was very, very little known about this, you know, that what happened in those last hours and minutes of, of the of their existence. So this would not be a perfect storm uh, recollection of what had occurred. We were going to spend, I knew, very little time um, at sea. And the reader knows uh, at the very outset that these four men ha have, have died. And so what I actually wound up delving into were the women who were, were the survivors, the, the widow and the mothers and the girlfriends who really brought these men to life. I did over 120 interviews over the span of about two years. I gathered way too much material for my first book. And, you know, as I delved into these different interviews with friends and family and, and fellow fishermen, you know, I, I learned a whole lot about golden tilefish that I never knew about. The story is as much about, you know, alcoholism and grief and loss and how much this, this amazing place we get to call home, the East End, how, how it's turned, you know, changed and morphed over the last few decades. And it's also a story about fathers and sons. It's a story about paternity and family secrets and all these sorts of things jumbled into this big soup. So it was um, it was such a pleasure to do this work and I just had no idea going into it how many different pathways that I would wind up following. Well, which would, did you follow all of them or just uh, did they mix and weave? Yes, they mix and weave together. I sort of go backwards and forwards in time, which some of the readers seem to like and some of them seem to really not like. It turns out you can't make everyone happy, as you must know, with a, as a book writer yourself. But yes, I, I explore these different themes um, in quite a bit of depth in, in various chapters as we get to know the men and their backstories and then kind of, you know, drifting into how this grief and loss would would present itself in terms of, of the survivors and, and even the how the how the grief would then ricochet into the next generation, how this thing is very much alive. Recently, there was a very similar uh, incident, which I've been reading about, um, about four guys who went fishing out of Montauk and were never heard from again. I'm sure you've heard about that. I have indeed. Yes. And uh, it, it's sort of, it just goes to the fact that people just don't believe that the ocean is a place that's so dangerous. Right. And then we're just the tiniest, you know, you, you, out in this expanse of sea where you can't see the land. These guys were going hundreds of miles offshore to go tile fishing. And for whatever reason, which we'll never know the answer to, 
all of the members of the Montauk fleet had made it in some just hours before, and they were caught in a you know, terrible rip current with 100 mile an hour winds and 40 foot seas aboard a 65 foot boat that was just swallowed up. And it was just about a dozen miles from the point between Montauk and Block Island. So they were, they were quite close to making it home. And then suddenly they, they vanished. Yeah. Well, I think also the, you know, the lack of closure in this story was reminiscent a little bit of, of the survivors, you know, from 9-11, when you don't have a body to grieve and you don't have a sense of finality, I think that that just does something to one's psychology that that is very different than when you you have a known sort of endpoint for for a loved one. Yeah, um, I, I was I was reminded in researching you for this interview, the 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 loss of the boat, the the uh, Pelican, out of Montauk, in, in after World War II, by a rogue wave that uh, swept over. A Montauk commercial fishing boat, and uh, about more than half of them, including the captain, were swept overboard and died. And uh, the interesting part of that for me is, you would think having I, I started a newspaper back in 1960 when I was 20. Wow! But uh, I didn't even know, and this this had happened only uh, uh, maybe nine years earlier. I didn't know about this ever for 20 years. Wow! history no one would talk about it they, they, they just couldn't do it and that was a huge loss of life dozens of of day you know fishermen and families and children went out for a beautiful what was a beautiful day on the water and just how quickly those conditions can change and obviously in the 80s and then in the you know in the 50s and 60s there weren't the types of of weather forecasts that were available and things would often sort of come out of nowhere well, a lot of they did find many bodies, and they were it was in and they were laid out in uh, the fishing uh, tackle shop in Montauk, uh, wow. which uh, later ruined the whole place where they were fishing boats were, which was in Fort Pond Bay at that time. And it was uh, I was so struck by that that you couldn't get anyone to talk about it. And uh, finally. Um, I can't remember who it was, recently wrote a book about it. It could be a bestseller. Um, Tom uh, Clavin. Tom Clavin. Uh, uh, yeah. Storm. Or something at noon, I forget. He wrote uh, High Noon. High yes. Noon for that. Yes. And all of a sudden, there it was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did you come away with from writing this book? And oh, uh, talk very briefly about, because I read a little bit about it, what happened between the time you signed off on producing the book for a major publisher and um, it appearing. You, you went through a whole lot and I and apparently delayed the book and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I did go through a whole lot. So I sold the book in January of 2018 based on just that first layer of reporting. And then, you know, I would, I would call my editor every few months and say, Jackie, you're not going to believe this has happened and this has happened. And it just kept kind of shape-shifting to the benefit of the narrative, I think, ultimately, but also um, to the confusion of the structure and how I would weave all of these different themes together. Obviously, I'd never written a book before. I'm a, a, I don't know that I'm a pro, but I'm, I'm pretty good at knowing exactly how much material you have to gather for a newspaper or magazine story. And this was just sort of like throwing paint at the wall 
and I don't really write until I've done the the reporting, the bulk of the reporting and the research, because I feel like you don't you don't really know what the the full thrust of the story is. So you know, and I was also incredibly you know it went through many many drafts, many iterations, and I just felt so humbled by <laughs> by how difficult it is to write a book, and how long it really takes. I think to do to do serious nonfiction. You know, there's not a word in that book that is that is made up or conjured from my imagination. And so I'm starting a new project. And, and honestly, I guess I feel some sense of relief that I've done it once before. And yet I also feel just a little overwhelmed at the moment and totally intimidated by the, the, the largeness of the task that lies ahead. What I hope you, I can do it a little faster the second time, but that remains to be seen. What are you going to be writing about? So I am going to be writing about the 400 year long history of Gardner's Island. And it's, as you know, it's the, one of the largest private uh, family owned islands uh, in all of the world. It's been passed down now 17 generations later, which is pretty remarkable. And I'm specifically gonna be focusing a lot on the little documented Gardner women is gonna be one of my points of focus. Although I recently read your amazing chapter about Robert David Lyon Gardner, and he will certainly also be playing a starring role and if I could wave my magic wand, I would just love to be able, obviously, to sit down with him in person. So um, I love talking to any anyone who's alive rather than, than spending my time in the archives. So I'm hoping to speak with anyone and everyone that has a, a Gardner's anecdote or two. I just uh, last week wrote some of those anecdotes again because uh, it was very timely with the death of Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Um, when he danced with the queen when she was first uh, made queen. Back wow. In oh, I'll have to go back and look at that. I, I, I missed that. Oh. But remarkable. Well, I, think, I think the piece that I have yet to really wrap my mind around is the fact that this was, you know, condoned by the king 150 years before the United States was even a country. I mean, just that span of time. It is, you know, just as you're saying, he, he danced with the queen at the beginning of her coronation. I mean, that was a very long time ago. <laughs> it was, but when you, and when you get back before the revolution, it gets really interesting because you talk about how somebody went to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia from Boston and you're thinking, oh, it must have taken a whole day, you know. Right. <laughs> it's not, not, no. Not the case. Right, yeah. it took them a week, uh, by, right, or maybe 10 weeks. Or, yeah, right. so and I'm thinking, what, where did all the horses go? You know, they all left after the automobile went. Are they hanging out on some island somewhere? I don't know. <laughs> That's a great point. Where did all the horses go? Um, where did they go? Yeah. And I, lo I love telling the story of a, of a place through the lens of a family. So I'm, I'm kind of looking toward that. But again, quite overwhelmed at this early early moment of the project. You went to Smith, I, I wrote? I did, uh, I did go to Smith, yes. And, um, then you went into uh, becoming a journalist. You've written numerous uh, essays for the New York Times. I have, yes. And, uh, also other publications. It's, I've read one or two of them and they're wonderful. Oh, thank you. And uh, I've been lately writing quite a bit, or not quite a bit, a few times a year for the Metropolitan section you know, store East, East End stories, essentially, that pique my interest. Although I've promised my husband and I, I just, I have to shut that down and really focus on, on gardeners or else I'm, I'm never going to meet my deadline. <laughs> you have a deadline? 
Uh, I do have a deadline, Dan. I do. And it's, it's, it's a little too soon. We'll have to see. So I have a question for you. Sure. Do you think it's important? So my deadline is in late April, early May. Um, and I have, you know, 400 years of history to try and figure out in between now and then, and also write it. Right. So that's, that's a lot. Do you feel like it's better to meet your deadline or to hand in the best manuscript you can produce? What, what, how, what, what side would you err on? Also, this is how I make my living. So that is also an incentive. <laughs> I wouldn't send anything out until I felt really good about it. I agree. Yeah. That's that's that. And uh, you just. So if it's three months later, six months later, we'll uh, adjust. Right. And you have to work really hard to make sure you, you don't go way over and really screw them up. You know. Oh, yes. Right. Right. Yeah. But it, when you get to, past the deadline, it becomes hurry up time. Right. We we'll won't move it until. It's right. I agree. I agree. I had a feeling you were going to say that, and I agree. The quality is ultimately what will stand the test of time, I hope. Yeah. Yep. Tell me a little about your family uh, and uh, why you like Sag Harbor. So um, we have two children. They go to Sag Harbor Elementary School. My husband teaches at Columbia. He's a sociologist. And we just fell in love with it. Just the the year-round community, which is so wonderful. That moment when the, the Labor Day traffic goes out of town and the population shifts. It's a little, I felt a little wobbly last week in terms of, of how sudden the, the transition actually is. Every year it kind of catches me off guard. But now I feel like we're sort of settling into our groove. And I love that the city is close, but not too close. And I can kind of drop into it, but then also retreat back home. I'm sort of an introverted extrovert, so I definitely can get a little overwhelmed in the city and love having downtime and being in nature and just being around so many creative people in this community, which is a, a real privilege. Well, you know, um, that is what made the Hamptons such a cultural success was that it was near and yet far. You right. Know, you go back to uh, some authors, you know, and painters like the Pollock, who was exiled out here by his art dealer. And um, early on, it was a lot of um, people hiding out. There were people like Edward Albee or right. who just were, and everybody would respect that. Yeah, you, yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd see him on the street, you didn't get all excited and you didn't let him know. <laughs> It is a good place to hide out, especially in, you know, January through March. There's, well, yes. Yeah. I, I, I remember someone telling me, a woman, it was a great socialite, telling me that she just loved being in the Hamptons in all the seasons, spring, summer, and fall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I will say the winter, the, you know, the late fall, winter months, I'm, I'm far more productive than I am in the summertime, sure. as I think a lot of us are. Uh, also, some people write long, longhand, which I don't understand. Um, oh, I don't understand that Bob, at all. I can barely read my handwriting. Bob Carroll does. I um, know, I know. Oh, I'm dying to be able to go. See. I guess he has this, obviously, this very elaborate kind of flow chart on some sort of cork board, or I don't really know. I think it's probably been told so many times that it's maybe not even true, but I can't imagine writing longhand. I, I can, yeah, anyway, that's a whole another order of, of being that I will never be able to, to achieve. Yeah. I just, my brain thinks so much better looking at the keyboard and then editing it. And 
as I'm sure maybe yours does as well. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. We have oh, thank you so much for your time and your interest. It, I'm such a it's such an honor, and I'm such a fan of you and your work and your legacy and and all of your your time here. It's such a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well. I uh, enjoyed this conversation, and I'll see you soon. I'm talking to Amanda Fairbanks, whose whose book The Lost Boys of Montauk is uh, her first novel and quite successful and. Uh, I will probably see you uh, in Steinbeck Park. Exactly. That sounds perfect. (laughs) I look forward to it. Bye for now. Okay. Take care.